Now, I'm going to go ahead and just transition right into uh, the message this morning, and I'm going to start with a question. Uh, how many of you, and for those of you joining us online, you can make a note in the comments or comment on this, but how many of you had grandparents that you feel like they were just truly special to you? Uh, individuals, you know, grandparents, maybe you were especially close to them. Yeah, that can be a really special uh, relationship. You, you know, really look up uh, there was a comedian years ago who talked about being raised by those same individuals and watching them as grandparents. It's like, okay, those aren't my parents. Those are old people trying to get into heaven uh, because they were just so much different from uh, uh, how, how, they was how they raised their kids. But I was very blessed to be born into a family with extraordinary grandparents on both sides. Uh, I adored my grandpa and grandma Crawford on my mother's side. They were ranchers and farmers in southeast Kansas, and it was, I just, spending time with them was always a gift. Uh, if I'm just being transparent, personality, chemistry-wise, temperament-wise, uh, my most natural chemistry and natural connection was with my grandpa and grandma, grandma Pickering. And actually, this was them when they were young. So this was uh, back in the day. And pretty dashing. That was my. Uh, that's actually their oldest was my my uncle, my dad's older brother. Uh, but by the time I came into the picture, they built, owned, and operated a successful full service fisherman's resort on Grand Lake in Oklahoma called Red Arrow Resort. And Red Arrow, they they had rental cabins, they had an RV campground, they had gas docks, wet docks, dry docks, fishing docks that were like heated in the winter time, which was awesome. They had boat sales and service. They eventually had a helipad. I mean, the cafe was always packed. I mean, around like 11:15, Grandma was just throwing onions on the griddle, on the grill, and throwing on that exhaust fan. The boats would just be coming in. And uh, my grandfather was a professional fishing guide. Now I can, you can imagine how awesome it was to be the grandson of a professional fishing guide. That was pretty fantastic. They were incredibly smart and loving and generous and kind. Grandma always had a pot of coffee ready. Uh, anyone could show up at any point unannounced and be graciously welcomed. And for sure, no one left their house hungry, which probably by the time like they were older, they couldn't get their arms around each other. But that's another story. But uh, Red Arrow, the, the Red Arrow experience, and because of the kind of people they were over their decades of life, as originally, originally also ranchers and farmers, but then as young individuals starting this resort, well, they developed this Red Arrow experience. And because of the kind of people they were over their decades of life on Grand Lake, they became widely known and respected, not just in that area, but in, all around the region and even in other states. Uh, governors and sen senators hired my grandfather to, to guide them uh, fishing. People traveled from all over the U.S. to come to Red Arrow. And I can't tell you how many times when I would be in the region around the lake where in shaking hands, because even as a boy I was raised, you, you shake hands, you greet people, we would exchange names, and they would hear my last name, and then they would ask, you're not related to Marvin and Mary Pickering, are you? And when I told them that I was their grandson, their only grandson, by the way, the handshake got really vigorous at that point, and uh, around the lake, I just, I was like treated like royalty, and as a kid, like, I loved it. I mean, I, I could just show up at a resort because I could take my little boat anywhere and go into a cafe. People would find out who I was, and they would, like, cover my lunch, cover my dinner, and, or, and they'd be like, now, make sure you tell your grandparents I saw them and name me by name. And 
Even years after their deaths, I was visiting the area, and I can't even remember where I was at the, at the time, but I was having a conversation with someone, and again, when they heard my last name, they asked, are you related to Marvin and Mary Pickering? And like, yeah, I'm their grandson. And they became very animated, just beginning to tell me all these stories of what they had respected and what, why they admired my grandparents so much. And as a kid and as a teen growing up, honestly, when I was there, I felt like a prince. So I loved being there. I, I had full access to everything Red Arrow. I had a giant set of keys to everything from the tackle boxes to the equipment lockers to the Willy Jeep that we put boats into the water and pull them out, uh, boats to the, wa- to the shop. And whenever I was around the resort walking around, people would greet me by name and ask how my grandparents were. But as awesome as that was, being connected, being connected to that name also came with a weight. There was a high level of expectation, a personal responsibility. There were numerous times where my grandpa or my grandma would tell me, they'd say, Chad, you're, you're a pickering, and that means something. You bear a name that those who came before you, they worked hard to make worthy of respect, and you're responsible for carrying that on. And always remember, when you speak and when you act, you're representing me. You're representing our family. You're representing our family name. So don't ever do or say anything to hurt the family name. And I would always assure them that I would do my part. Now, ironically, growing up here in Wichita, about four hours away, having that distance, uh, I was pretty much trouble waiting to happen. Uh, In fact, in most of my middle school and early high school years, anytime the phone would ring in the weeknight, I would immediately get nauseous because I was convinced it was one of my teachers yet again calling to tell my parents how I had been a disturbance in class that day. In fact, I think I just got in the habit when the phone rang, I would just get up and go to my room because like, I'm going to be grounded, so just, just head on back. But when I was in Oklahoma... When I was spending time with my grandparents at Red Arrow, I was an angel. In fact, I'm pretty sure my grandparents thought my parents were nuts because just making stuff up about my behavior because when I was with them, like I didn't need my Ritalin. Uh, I, I always did what I was told. I never did anything ever to give them a reason to not trust me. And looking back, as I think about it, even as a boy, there was something compelling about living for something bigger that I felt connected to. And it did something to me. I wanted to live up to this mythical name. And I wanted these people that I revered, my grandparents, to be proud of me. And I, felt, I just felt this honor in being, a respons- being responsible to represent a great name. And, and, and all this connects to, to where we're headed ultimately today. Because today we're in part seven of this multi-church series, The Fundamental List, Recovering the essentials of our faith, and we've been answering the question, what must a person believe in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus? Not what must a person do, because we talk about the do. We have application series here all the time. We talk about doing, because doing is what actually makes the difference in your life and in the lives of those around you. But stepping back from the do part, it's also important to understand or know what what do we need to believe in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus? And it's an important question because, as we've said, there are just so many different versions of Christianity, so many different denominations, and it's confusing. confusing. Uh, And the confusing thing is that every single faith tradition or denomination or expression of Christianity, it comes with its own terms and expectations and conditions. And sometimes they use a different translation of the Bible. And we baptize differently. We do communion differently. We have different interpretations of certain scriptures, which makes it very confusing for Christians, let alone those outside of Christianity. And they're like, you guys can't even agree on what's most important or what this thing 
should look like. And then to make it even more complicated, in every generation since about the second century, new and novel ideas, sometimes toxic or harmful, even unthinkable things have been added or woven into certain traditions of Christianity, some being elevated to the point of doctrine or dogma, that if you don't believe these things, well, then you're not a real Christian. You're out. You're not true. And if you reject some of these ideas uh, that, again, came a long way after the time of Jesus, again, you're not a true Christian. But here's why we're doing this series. With non-essentials, with non-essentials and made-up things begin to characterize a church or a denomination or the Christian faith, Thoughtful individuals realize something just doesn't feel right. It seems off. And in some cases, they begin to deconstruct their faith. It's like they step out of organized religion to sort out out the essentials, the non-essentials, figure out what exactly is fundamental, what is foundational, what truly represents first century Christianity. And this is likely the story of someone you know, and it might be your story. You may have hit pause on all things, all things organized religion. This is exactly what my own father did when I was eight years old. I've talked about this. And it isn't that you don't still have faith in God or that you don't still believe, you know, that Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be, but that's your faith tradition or your church or your denomination or whatever it is that you just, it begins to sense Something is off a bit. And this is the story for millions and increasing numbers of people and for the next generation who are walking away from versions of Christianity where they're saying, they're saying that, you know, I, I feel like they may know the Bible, but I'm not sure they know Jesus. Non-essentials have become obstacles for faith and Christianity has become untenable for individuals. It's no longer good news for all people. In fact, it's become part of the problem. So that's why we're talking about it. So, so far, we've talked about six of these eight essentials. I'm going to run through them really quick, but for those of you who are either just joining us or maybe you missed one of these weeks, I want to encourage you to get on newlifewichita.com, get on our New Life Wichita YouTube channel, catch up on this series, or catch the one that you missed because these all build. But quickly, here are the fundamentals that we've discovered so far. The first one is that Jesus is God's Son and our King. That to be a faithful follower of Jesus, this is something that you have to believe because this is what Jesus claimed about himself. The second is that Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God is like. So in in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus, this is something you have to embrace, because this is what Jesus said he came to do. The third thing is Jesus had a specific definition of sin. And if you're going to be a faithful follower of Jesus, then that means you have to embrace his view of everything about life, of all things. And Jesus defines sin as anything that harms you or harms others. And number four is that Jesus promised justice in the end, that if you're a Jesus follower, that you believe that there is going to be justice someday in the end, that all wrongs will eventually be made right. But Jesus invites us to trust him in the meantime. And then number five, that Jesus died for your sin, for you to reconcile you to God. And then number six, we talked about the church, that the church is God's agent for transformation. Personally, culturally, globally, that Jesus left the church behind to represent him. And even though you go to and you are part of an imperfect church because it's full of imperfect people that are messes like you and me, the church still remains the epicenter of God's activity on planet earth. So it's a huge deal if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, that we don't go to church, we are, to, are the church. And today, 
to define seven of eight. We're going to begin by looking at Jesus's final command. This is ultimately, it's like his farewell address and explains, it explains why we're even here today or why you're listening online. And it must be taken seriously because it is from him. And here's where we're going to dig down today. It has to be taken personally. In fact, if by the time that I'm done this morning, you don't feel the personal connection, I have failed you. Maybe I've been failing you, which raises bigger questions. So I'm going to do my best to help you make the personal connection. So following the resurrection, outside of Jerusalem, Jesus, he appears to his apostles and the women who have been following him, and he says, listen, I want you to go to Galilee. I want you to go a few hundred miles north because they're outside of the city of Jerusalem. I want you to go about 100 miles north to Galilee and meet me there because it was safer there. So they go to Galilee, and Matthew is one of those that goes, and he documents what happens next. He tells us that the 11 disciples, him being one of them, Judas is missing, we know that story, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. And when, he saw, when they saw him, they finally asked him all those questions they've been dying to ask him all along. Okay, I made that up. But my whole life, here's what I've heard people say, and I think we've all thought this at one time or another. When I get to heaven, I've got some questions. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about this. I'm going to ask Jesus about blank, whatever it is. When I get to heaven, I'm going to be like, okay, God, okay, Jesus, you need to sit down. I got a list of questions about these things that didn't make any sense and why you did this and why you didn't do that. But let me just, when we get to heaven, however that works, let me just tell you your future. Uh, You're not going to ask any questions, and neither am I, because we're going to be so utterly overwhelmed by it all. Do you know what they did next? They did what everybody will eventually do, what we would have done. When they saw him, they worshiped him. Now, see, we read by this, especially if you've grown up in the church, you've been in church, it's it's so familiar, but especially Jewish men and women worshiping a human being as if that human being were God. This is just so incredibly impossible and offensive Worshiping a human being as if that human being was God was even offensive to Roman and Greek mindsets. But according to Matthew and the people who were there, this is what they did, and Jesus didn't resist it. And it's, it's awesome how math, honest Matthew is. He tells us they worshiped him, but some doubted. And you have to wonder if the people that were with Matthew, when they found out that Matthew was going to include this in the text, that they go, Matthew, do you do you really need to include it? Because it makes us look bad. Where Matthew could have responded, listen, we've been making ourselves look back the entire time. It's like we, every time we ask dumb questions or we respond incorrectly. And when they arrested our rabbi, what did we do? Well, we ran off and hid. Yeah, exactly. So we've already looked bad. But the question is, why? I mean, he's right there. Why would they doubt? And the reason is simple. Because they were just like us. If we had seen what they had seen, these first century Jews weren't stupid. They doubted because they saw him die a horrific, unmistakable death, and dead people, especially Roman flogged, tortured, crucified, and buried people, they don't come back to life. 
And if we had been there to see it as they had with their own eyes, it would just so violate everything that we understand and comprehend and know in this world, in this life, that there's a good chance we would have doubted as well because it doesn't make sense. And what follows is perhaps one of the most overlooked, ignored, and disregarded statements of the entire Bible in terms of what could and should be applied. And if the church, if every single one of us, if every single one of you who name the name of Jesus as your hope, as your master, if would embrace what he says next, it would change things almost instantaneously in your life and for sure in our culture. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth, which would be everything, everywhere, has been given to me. Now, as Jewish men and women sitting there listening to Jesus, they heard something that we wouldn't hear because we aren't first century Judeans. But I'll tell you what they heard. When Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me, here was the implication that they heard. Ladies and gentlemen, Moses was your guy, the Torah was your text, but the king has arrived. The shadow caster is here. So as a result, when they saw him, they worshiped him. So this was huge. It's, they connected the dots. It's that you are the final king with all authority in heaven and on earth. You hold the keys to heaven and earth. And based on what you've said, we're your guys. We're your gals. We're your posse. We're your people. To which Jesus would have replied, you are indeed Now, with that association, to me, comes responsibility, extraordinary accountability. Attaching yourself to me and my name means that everywhere you go and everything you do and everything you say reflects back on me and reflects on the name. So if you're going to continue to associate with me, to be my brand ambassador, to be my kingdom ambassador, if you're going to continue to identify with and use and leverage my name, do you realize how accountable that makes you? To which in that moment, in front of their resurrected king that they had seen dead and buried, they're like, absolutely we do. But what do we do with that? Yes, we're your followers, but where are we going? What happens next? Like, is now the time we reestablish the kingdom of Israel on earth? Is now the time we're going to retake Jerusalem? This is what they were wondering. Since you conquered death, do we get to conquer something now? Do we get to conquer the Romans? All authority on heaven and earth belongs to you. Do we finally get to call down fire on our enemies like we tried to do two months ago, but you wouldn't let us? To which Jesus would smile and say, no, I've got way bigger plans. Way bigger plans for you than Jerusalem or even the territory of Galilee. We're about to launch something that's global. And you, ladies and gentlemen, you have no idea how big the world actually is. But you're not going to conquer anything. Instead, I'm sending you out with an invitation. And it's the very same invitation I extended when we first met to invite people to follow me. Therefore, go and make disciples. In this entire passage in Matthew, there's only, in the Greek, there's only one imperative in this whole passage, this one command, a singular command, and it's this, make disciples. And the implication for them and for us is that as you go, as you are living, as you are doing life, wherever you're doing life, wherever you travel, 
If you're going to, in fact, associate with me, you have a responsibility. And it's to make sure that you are in some form or in some fashion making more followers. In other words, Jesus is saying, if I show back up in a year, I expect there to be more of you because of you. If I show up back in 10 years, I expect there to be a lot more of you for the rest of your life, part of your responsibility as you get your education, as you do life, as you do marriage, if you choose to get married, as you raise your children, if you choose to have children, as you age, as you pursue your career path, every single step along the way, if you're going to associate with me, you're to take on the mantle of responsibility of consistently investing in and engaging with people who are far from me in order that you will multiply and replicate yourself. Simply put, the command was this, as you go, multiply. Now, let's just be honest. None of us signed up for that. Like, for those of you who would say, I'm a Christian, or you, you became a Christian for the same reason that I did. Because you were presented with some version that if you accept Jesus, if you become a Christian, there's more to this life than this life, and things eternally are going to go very, very well for you. But if you don't, then it's going to be very, very bad. And let's just be honest, most of us are pain avoidant. It's like, okay, whatever, it's like sign me up, I, I, I believe. But Jesus says, this gift, this offer of new life, it isn't just for you. That if you accept it, Part of accepting it is now you have the responsibility to pass it on to others. And then he says this, Therefore go and make disciples, followers of me, of all nations. Which they immediately would have thought, Whoa, non-Jews, Gentiles, Parthians, Greeks, Romans. Like this is not going to go well in Rome. And they looked at each other like, We've never even been outside Judea or Galilee. Like this is the only world that we know. And never in history have the Jewish people been called or commanded to make more followers of Judaism, but you're calling us to make followers of you. So this is something new. It's just difficult for them to process. This was all a brand new idea. And again, we zip right by this. Jesus says, make these disciples and baptizing them. So again, this would have impacted them so significantly, significantly because this is covenant language. This means full inclusion. It means there is no distinction. There's always been distinction. And again, they're thinking, but we don't even cross the threshold of a Gentile. We don't allow them to cross ours. And there's all this dietary stuff, all this moral stuff. And you're talking full inclusion of non-Hebrew, non-Torah believing people. No distinction. See, we're challenged even with just like, who should be included in the, in the local church? I'm telling you the way they felt in this moment, we can't even begin to comprehend. And here's what he says next. And again, we rush right by this. And again, this is so offensive, unless he is who he said he was and claimed to be. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, that makes sense, and of the Son, which was him, and of the Holy Spirit. And once again, he includes himself in a list where no mere mortal belongs. He's equating himself with deity, with God the Father. Go and make disciples, baptizing them. And then this part is very important. There's a teaching element to this. Teaching them. I want you to teach them. Teach them what, Jesus? I want you to teach them to obey, not just believe. 
I want you to teach them to obey. Well, obey what? Everything I have commanded you. Have you ever thought about the implications of this statement? He's saying, I want you, ladies and gentlemen, to teach them everything I have taught you, to take what I have taught you, and I replicate that. I want you to live it out, and then I want you to teach it to others. Like, Jesus like, remember my message on the side of the mountain? We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Like, oh, yeah, Jesus, that was a long one. Yeah, so you remember that one? There was just so much. Yeah, teach that. Remember about that log and eye, a speck and an eye? I want you to teach that. Remember the extra mile, giving a shirt? Yeah, I want you to teach that. Remember when I told you you've got to fix it with others before you try to fix it with God? Yeah, I want you to go and teach that. I want you to make sure to teach that. Remember what I taught you about giving and being generous in the, because there's more to this life than this life? Be sure to teach that. I want you to teach people to forgive regardless. I want you to teach people to be like the Samaritan in that one parable and not be like the older brother in the other parable. I want you to teach them to do unto other people that they want done the way they want done under them, unto them. I want you to teach that, but take it up a notch. I want you to teach people to love one another in the way that I have loved you. I want you to teach them to love their enemies the way that I loved you when you were my enemy, the way I loved you after you betrayed me, after you abandoned me, after you quit believing me. I want, you to teach, I want you to teach them to wash one another's feet like I washed your feet. And you remember what I told you on that very uncomfortable night, that as I have done for you, you are to do for others. That's what I want you to teach. That's what I want you to do. I want you to teach them to do everything that I've commanded you to do. Now let me just point out the obvious that most Christians seem to miss. And that is to be able to teach what Jesus taught. You have to know what Jesus taught, which means that before you can teach, you need to make yourself a student. Many of you, and I, I promise, I'm not judging you, I'm not trying to shame or embarrass, I'm just not, but like most American Christians, many of you have formed opinions and beliefs, you've even formed a theology of God and Jesus based on secondhand information. Maybe a book that you read or something you heard once or you were told once or because you have a few Bible verses but that you heard or read once, but they're pulled out of context from everything else important that connects to the subject matter. And what I mean is that there's a lot of things that, that if you're just being honest, that you would say, I could never accurately teach about God or Jesus or obedience, because you're busy. I get it. You're busy like the rest of us, but as a result, you've not taken the time to actually learn it, to read it, to seek to understand it, to internalize it, and then be able to teach it. Like, if I had one wish that could be fulfilled for our community, just one wish fulfilled this year, it is that every one of you would become a student to make reading the Gospels and reading the New Testament a priority at least five days a week, if not every day, that you would lean into the amazing study plans that every, every one of us with a smartphone, a tablet, or a laptop have access to at our fingertips. And why do that? Not just for your benefit, because you will benefit, but because you and I, if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, you not just me, with the microphone and went to seminary. You don't need any of that. You have been called 
to be a teacher, to teach everyone everything Jesus taught and commanded. Because just imagine, what, what if we, from the beginning, had never diverted from that in the Jesus movement? What if we, that had been the focus of the whole church's teaching and preaching and discipling and discussions? What if obeying, not just believing what Jesus taught, had been the epicenter of preaching and teaching and living all these years for these generations, the world would be a far better place. The church would be a far more healthy and attractive place. And Jesus gives them a promise because you have to imagine that they were thinking what we would have been thinking. In fact, what I described just a minute ago about you being a teacher, this is what you think. We don't know how to do this. We don't know how to talk to Gentiles. We don't even know how to talk, know any Gentiles. We hate the Samaritans and the Romans, like we hate them and they hate us. They're our enemy. What you're asking, it's too much for us. I'm no teacher, Jesus. And Jesus knew how overwhelmed that they felt. It's overwhelming for us to think about because, again, we got into our faith for entirely selfish reasons. But he says, listen, I'm not sending you alone. Surely I am with you always to the very end of this age, which is this current age. But here's the question. Who is you? And the answer is, you is you. If you're someone who has attached yourself to Jesus Christ as a believer in and a follower of, he's referring to you. And whether you know it or not, see it or not, feel it or not, sense it or not, Jesus has promised to be with us. He promised a helper. He promised a Holy Spirit. He promised to be with you to the end of this new age that began with Jesus touching down on this earth and his resurrection that carries through all the way to the end of this age until the final end, whether it's an hour from now, which we fail to realize it could be, or a hundred years from now, that believers in and followers of Jesus have an important mission. And the King Himself has promised to be with us as we partner with Him in that mission of making disciples, of being disciple makers. So I'm just going to ask a silly question. Do you want Jesus to be with you in this life? I hope so. Because He's a way bigger deal than you and me. And his agenda is way bigger and way better and a more important agenda than my personal agenda or yours. So do you want Jesus to be with you? Because if you do, then you you have one choice. You have to choose to be with him because he's not going to force you. So are you? Are you with him on this? To be more specific, how much, if any, of your time and resources is allocated to Jesus' assignment that he's given to you and given to me? In your day-to-day life, is part of it intentional to make more followers of Jesus? Does the percentage of your money and your time intersect systematically with the endeavors of the church? Maybe an organization somewhere else that's focused on making more disciples. In other words, do your resources and your time intersect systematically with the mission given to you, given to me by our King? 
Or are we too caught up in minding our own submissions, our own personal priorities of attaining as much comfort and personal pleasure in this life as we can? And one of the things that I love about this church is that most of you who call this community your church home, who believe in the culture that we're trying to create and the mission of trying, that we're trying to accomplish, Christ followers working to create a church that the young church would love to attend. One, one of the ways that you're demonstrating that you're engaged in the mission of this church is that your name is attached to one of our teams who work to make the weekend experience the best it can be for adults and for the next generation, for long-time new lifers and for first-time guests. You serve with the mindset that every Sunday is somebody's first Sunday, and you do your part to create an environment from the moment somebody drives into the parking lot to the moment that they leave or the moment that they log on to the moment that they log off to where they have the kind of experience where they don't want to just come back, but they want to invite friends. They want to bring friends. Many of you are invite, investing in the next generation through kids' life. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, a New Life mom shared with me about her little boy being in a jungle gym with a bunch of tunnels and things to crawl through. Her son came out at one point told his mom that he'd gotten scared in one of the tunnels, and she's like, it's okay, you don't need to worry, mom's here, I'm watching, you'll, you'll, you'll be okay. He went back in, and then he came right back out. He said, mommy, actually, I don't ever need to be scared because Jesus is with me wherever I am. And he went back in. <laughs> and she told me, unfortunately, this wasn't anything that she had actually taught him, she wished it had, but this was something that he picked up in kid's life. And that's because those of you who serve in kids' life are partnering with parents and equipping the next generation with an enduring faith and a selfless love. You're doing your part. And we're able to resource kids' life and everything else we do and everything that we hope to do because many of you, like my wife and I, you, you make giving and investing in new life priority. Doing so, you're communicating to Jesus, I'm in this with you. I want to be a part of what you want to do and accomplish in this broken world. But it's important to understand that while the weekend experience is very, very important, the weekend experience isn't the end goal. As a pastor, I mean, I'll, yes, I would love to see us having to add more chairs every single weekend, having them all filled, having hundreds join us online, having a, just a deeply felt, robust experience right here in these walls on any given weekend. But my hope is beyond these walls. My hope is that in partnering with God and with each one of you, that we create an experience that will impact beyond these walls into the lives of others. That the Sunday experience would be like the previews before a movie. They're designed to make you want to see the entire thing. And that whatever we do on any given weekend would inspire people to get connected and invested here, but not just here, beyond the weekend. Some of you are living out Jesus' command to be involved in helping people find and follow him by intentionally investing in the lives of friends and families and co-workers who are unchurched or far from God. And many of you, you take every opportunity you can to invite people to come sit with you at New Life because you take seriously the mission handed to you by Jesus some of you, you meet at homes every single week or every other week in circles, and you wrestle with the questions like, how do we do this? How do we live this out? I, I try to understand. How do I live this out in my singleness? How do I live this out in my marriage? How do I live this out in my difficult boss or my difficult spouse? Or how do I live this out while I'm unemployed? And what does it look like to follow Jesus? Like, hold me accountable, and I, I want to get this right. And they share their stories, and people hear their stories, and they're encouraged and they're inspired to follow Jesus because they have people around them who have put feet on their faith. 
And many of you, you you're involved in uh, not-for-profit organizations like my wife and I that help ensure that people not only hear the message of Jesus, but connected to that, they receive some of the tangible things that they need in their life so that they'll be better open to the conversation or the name about or name of Jesus. You're opening a door to them perhaps becoming a follower of Jesus. So for those of you that are already doing that, thank you. And I can make this promise without any hesitation. Your Savior is with you because you are with Him. These were Jesus' final instructions. It was, it's essential. It's fundamental. It's how we got here. And so number seven on our list is simply this. The Jesus followers are not just believers. Jesus followers are multipliers. Because this is what Jesus said about his followers. Jesus, Jesus followers are multipliers collectively and sometimes individually. Now, for some of you, if we were talking one-on-one, you might say, Chad, uh, I don't really like your list. I think it's ridiculous. I think you're making it up. I think you're just trying to get me to do something and guilt me into doing something I don't want to do. I just need to have right theological beliefs. So let me just say something about that. When it comes to beliefs, I've talked about, for example, the importance and role of creeds throughout church history uh, because they were used to teach and pass down theology because for a majority of, time, of, of humanity in most parts of the world, people were just illiterate. So this is how they learned. And you can fact check me on this. The top five most widely known Christian creeds that span, uh, span a time of about 90 to 500 years after the resurrection of Jesus are the Apostles' Creed, the Creed of Nicaea, and the Nicaean Creed, uh, the Chalcedonian Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And, and, and these creeds, I'll admit, they're more theologically robust than our fundamental list. But here's the thing. These creeds were created in an era when the church was condoning all manner of unchristian activity, unchristlike activity. Why? Because words and beliefs don't necessarily translate into obedience. And when the church substitutes belief and belief statements and creeds for following and obeying what Jesus taught, people always get hurt, but worse, they get hurt in the name of Jesus. Jesus came to them and said, I've demonstrated who I am by rising from the dead, so here's what I wanted you to do in response. I want you to go, and as you go, be followers who make more followers. Make disciples. At the end of your life, I want you to be able to look back and be able to point and say, look at him. Look at her. I was a part of his story. I was a part of her story. I wasn't the whole story, but I was a part of it. Or look at that child. Look at that college student. I was a part of that coworker, that family member's story. They are obeying and following Jesus partly because of my life, my time, me, my resources intersecting with their life. So let's do this. For some of you, Keep doing this. For some of you, do this more. Maybe you've been tempted to think you're not really making a difference in your efforts. I'm just telling you, I have lived long enough to learn you are making a far greater difference than you comprehend or understand. You just keep it up because you don't know what's going to happen in their life in the future that God will intersect with your faithfulness. So let's do this. And if you're not 
intentionally playing a part, then you've got to find your part. You've got to be about the king's business. It's not an add-on. It's not for professionals. It's not for pastors and preachers. It's for everyone. It's for you. It's fundamental. It's not an add-on. Jesus' followers are multipliers, so figure out a way to be a multiplier where God has you. If for no other reason than because two handfuls of men and women who had never been further than anywhere they could walk, they were given this responsibility. And as impossible as what Jesus was describing seemed, they decided to be good stewards of that command and call of Jesus and their generation. And it changed the world. And 2,000 years later, it is the reason you're here or listening this morning. Because they were faithful. Now it's our turn. We have been called to be good stewards of the gospel in our time. It is up to us to be multipliers. It is how the world changed. So let's do for others what others did for us. Because if we do, he will be with us because we decided to be with him. Let me pray for us. Father, you're so good. And Father, I pray for us as you have called us all to do this. But Father, the truth is most of us are scared, we're terrified. And for what? For most of us, Father, we're just afraid somebody will reject it or want to walk away or make fun of us or it'll hurt our relationship. But God, I pray that you would help us overcome all those irrational fears because this, nothing more matters than this. So, I pray, Father, for the people that you've already put in all of our lives, everyone that's listening to me right now, there's somebody in our life that you have there on purpose, and we're the ones that you're calling to help them take their next steps towards becoming a disciple, a follower of Jesus, to be reconciled to you, to experience life that's truly life. So, Father, this is easier said than done. But I pray for us as a community that it would begin with us. And that, Father, that you would allow us in our lifetime to see the fruit of those efforts and that obedience. Father, I just pray all these things in in the name of Jesus. Amen.